1: My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone we took on flesh Fullness of God in helpless day This gift of love No guilt in life, no fear in death This is the power of Christ in me From life's first cry to final breath Jesus commands my destiny No power of hell, no scheme of man Can ever pass me from His hand till He returns and calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Well, no scheme of man can ever part me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ
0: Last week, we talked about the almost how the almost Christian is the person who's believed in Jesus, has been baptized, but is still missing something, usually the ability to love God and other people. And we spoke about the need to change the way we talk about the the world around us, the need to see God in action and point him out, because that is the way we learn to love God. Now, if you missed that sermon, it's available on the website at cedargroveunitedmethodist.org. And I'll put a link in the written sermon that goes out this week to the newsletter subscribers or those who follow on the Facebook page. And for those of you who would like to tell your company at Thanksgiving about the miracles that the pilgrims experience, there's also a link to something I wrote a few years ago that I'll put in that bulletin. But this week, as we move into the Thanksgiving season, we really need to learn to love God as the pilgrims did and as Jesus' early disciples did. So let's look at the situation in ancient Israel at the time of Zephaniah, the writer of our first passage. While the previous two kings, Ammon and Manasseh, ruled in Jerusalem, cults of other gods had grown in the country, particularly Baal, and that's a Baal figure, who often demanded the burning of children as human sacrifice. And they worshipped Astarte, whose temples were homes for temple prostitutes, both male and female. This was the scene when Zephaniah was writing, pointing out that without change, God would destroy Jerusalem. As Zephaniah pointed out, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. But the new king, Josiah, he reformed Jerusalem. He got the message, and he reformed Jerusalem and Judah with the help of Zephaniah and God. And for a while, while Josiah ruled, things were better. But the kingdom was attacked and destroyed about 20 years after Josiah's death as the people returned to their old ways and the nobles were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. Now when Jesus came along, by that time, the Jews knew the law that God had given Moses to give to them. They knew what was right and they knew what was wrong just as most people today know what is right and what is wrong. But the prophet John the Baptist and Jesus himself plus the followers of Jesus like the Apostle Paul began once again to preach that a day of destruction was coming. Why? Because although the men and women and particularly the rulers and the elites of the time knew right from wrong they were content to just assume that God would not take any action, just as the rulers and the people in the day of Zephaniah had been. They, did, they assumed God wasn't going to do anything, mostly because God had not yet taken action against the people of their time. They mistook God's patience for an attitude of not caring what people did. It's the same today. We have a lot of people... Who mistook, mistake God's patience for an attitude that He doesn't care what people do. Today, we see many, many people making one of two wrong assumptions. One group of people assume that they're good enough on their own for heaven why largely because almost everyone can point to at least someone who behaves worse than they do and is considered a good person by most people you see despite what the Bible teaches us most people consider a person to be good enough for heaven if they have a nice home nice clothes speak well and don't have any public addictions it helps if they are nice people so how do you decide who is a nice person, what do they do that's different from a bad person? What makes you categorize someone as good or bad? How much do you depend upon looking at their clothing? The other group of people assume that they've messed up so much that they can never be good enough for heaven, that they're doomed to hell someday, and That's usually because of some action or event in their past. They are so frightened of God's wrath that they've simply given up. They feel that they're in a hole so deep that they can never dig their way out of it. And so they often dig themselves deeper through a series of bad decisions. So which are you? Are you one of the good people or one of the bad people? Are you one of the people who think you're great and ready to go to heaven? or are you think one of the people who think you're too bad to go to heaven? It was much the same way at the time of Jesus. There were the Pharisees who felt that they belonged to the good people's club. Going to heaven because they felt they were better than those people around them. They dressed right. They spoke right. They generally followed the law of Moses, and when they couldn't follow the law, they found loopholes in the law that they could point to and say, well, that but I can do this and still be good. The Pharisees didn't really pay any attention to God because their salvation, as far as they were concerned, was a foregone conclusion because they were good people. After all, the Pharisees controlled the good people's club. They had made it into the club because they were so good all by themselves, and so they did not need to pay attention to God. They had saved themselves. And then there were the rest of the people, the masses of people who could not afford the special clothing that the Pharisees insisted was necessary. People who at one time had eaten forbidden foods like ham or shrimp because they were so poor they couldn't afford the good stuff, the beef or the lamb there were people who had made poor choices in their selection of people to sleep with, perhaps outside of marriage, and people who took a job with the occupying Romans or who collected money for the government. All of these people were seen as bad people. Each of these people, these people who were not Pharisees, felt a tremendous guilt and had given up on ever being good enough for God, And so these people had begun to hate God and definitely hated the Pharisees who had told everyone who God supposedly liked and who God hated. Isn't it the same way today? Aren't there people out there who tell us who is good people and who is bad people? Don't we categorize people into good people and bad people? And then Jesus came to town and he began to preach. Jesus had two messages. One was for the Pharisees and the similar elites, the good people. And the other message was for the people who had given up being good, the bad people. To the Pharisees, the members of the good people club, Jesus pointed out that they were like whitewashed tombs. Nice looking on the outside, but full of rot on the inside. For you see, they had no connection to God, the source of life. They didn't love God. They only followed the rules they found in the law and the extensions to the law that society had given. And even further, they made following the rules more important than loving God or loving other people. And Jesus targeted today's Matthew reading and parable toward the Pharisees. In the story, a wealthy man who represents God goes away on a journey, leaving three servants to take care of his wealth, and the Greek language that it was written in makes it clear that each bag of gold weighed about 75 pounds, or in today's value, each bag was worth over two million dollars. So the wealthy man gave one guy about 11 million dollars, a second servant a little over five million dollars, and the last one a bit over two million dollars. The first two servants used the money to make money, and so they doubled their money while the wealthy man was gone, returning a big profit to the wealthy man when he returned. The third man was very cautious. He was scared of the wealthy man. He buried the gold and returned it to the wealthy man when he returned. The first two were rewarded with promotions when the wealthy man returned, but the third man was scolded by the owner Because the third man had been so afraid of losing what he had that he had not even earned interest in the money from the bankers. And the wealthy man took back the gold and gave it to the leading servant and had the coward thrown into the outer darkness. This story is not, this story is about either working for God, doing God's mission, as the first two servants did, or being too afraid of God to do anything as the third servant did. And so it was with the Pharisees. They were so concerned with not making a mistake that they never did much at all to increase God's kingdom. This parable isn't just about money. It's about an attitude toward God. Are you so paralyzed with fear of making a mistake that you won't do anything for God? Or are you constantly using what resources you've been given, time, money, talents, and prayer, to take chances to grow God's kingdom as God has asked all of us to do. The Pharisees didn't invest in the kingdom because the Pharisees were frightened of making a mistake, breaking one of the rules in the law, and so they never took chances. The good servants understood that their role, what was important to the master, was to grow their master's wealth, which means, in the context, to grow the kingdom of God. They understood the master's goals, his complete character, and they loved doing what he asked. The Pharisees were like the third servant, holding on desperately to what they had, frightened to death of God because they were so focused upon the rules and laws that God had given to Moses. But God wanted people to see the big picture, the forest, if you will, and not be so concerned about the individual trees of the law. You see, God isn't as focused upon us following the individual laws as the Pharisees and many people today believe. Instead, God loves us and wants us to grow our character, to succeed, to become wonderfully strong people, to strengthen our souls even, to learn to love God and other people. Learning to love other people and bring them to God is much more important than whether you wear the proper tassels on your robe or how closely you follow the Sabbath laws. Growing the kingdom is God's will. The law was simply guidance for how to live in harmony with other people and how to make God a priority in your life. But the Pharisees, they had made the law their God instead of loving the maker of the law. Jesus tried to get this point across to the Pharisees several times that loving God and other people was much more important than following the letter of the law. But they rejected him. And Jesus wanted everyone to be sure that they understood that no one could perfectly follow the law except him. And, of course, he was God on the earth. So, you know, he had a bit of an advantage. Most of Paul's epistle to the Romans is about our inability to be saved by following the law. It's a message for those people who believe in a good people's club as the way to get into heaven. But Jesus had a slightly different message for the people who were not Pharisees, the people who had given up on God because the Pharisees had convinced them they could never be good enough for God. And that message was really quite simple. The Pharisees are wrong. God doesn't love people because they have managed to become members of the good people's club and are so good. No, God still loves every person despite all the bad things they've done. Other than walking away from God permanently, there's nothing so wrong that you can do that God won't forgive for God is not bound by the law. God made the law and so God can change the law just for you and God loves you deeply. When I talk to a new Christian they often ask me, What sins are the bad sins and what sins are the little sins? Most people begin their Christian walk knowing that the things they've done are wrong. And most people think that some sins are much worse than other sins. But this is the world's view. It's not the Bible's teaching. But you know, every person who comes to find Jesus has a list of 30, 30, 40, 50 things they've done wrong and most are continuing to commit those sins. Following the plain message of the Bible, every person has broken the law and deserves death, eternal death, because even something as simple as a tendency to steal paper clips from your office may grow, well, will grow into a major character flaw over the centuries if something isn't done about it. Soon it will be the theft of reams of paper, and then the theft of a copier, and then it will become embezzlement, and then people will be injured or even killed to keep the crimes from being reported if those sins are not confronted. But God knows this, and so God gives us the Holy Spirit that we might break free from our addictions, our bad habits, and our character flaws. We are to follow that spirit rather than the letter of the law. Our freedom rarely happens all at once, but when we recognize that God is patient and forgiving, we can come to love God and choose to learn how to avoid those behaviors God doesn't like. God loves us, and we begin to love God, and then we begin to improve our behaviors, and it takes time to stop our bad behaviors. This year we might have to work on our addiction. Next year we'll work on being kind to others. The next year the Spirit will suggest we work on loving people and welcoming them. What of your sins is the Spirit working on you right now? We begin to tell people about Jesus as we go along. And so our character improves because of God's patience and love for us in modern terms god is not an inflexible machine of steel with a with black and white rules like the pharisees thought they thought that life was like we tell the three-year-old child never 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 cross the street and the pharisees pharisees thought this about all the rules but you know when children turn six or seven we tell them only cross the street at the crosswalk when the walk sign is on. And then when they're about 12 or 13 we tell our children okay you can cross the street anywhere but look both ways carefully before crossing. We gradually relax the rules as our children are able to understand the greater picture and see the, the various situations in, in a better context. But you know the full truth is that when the policeman's directing traffic tells you to cross the street, you should cross the street, no matter how old you are. And in this example, the policeman is God the Holy Spirit. And the guidance of the Holy Spirit tells us when it's okay or even wiser to break the rules rather than follow them. Like when your side of the street is on fire, or when your friend is in that bar drunk, and in bad trouble, you can go in to rescue him. For God is not a machine, but has compassion and love and wisdom. God has personality. In fact, God loves people so much that God sent his son to die on the cross. And Jesus chose to walk up the hill to that cross, carrying that cross, and chose not to be rescued. And so Jesus showed the people that God actually loves people And isn't waiting like a traffic cop paid on commission outside a bar ready to take away your driver's license if you get in your car and turn on the engine. God's not ready to do that to you. And you know when the church began to grow so fast under the leadership of the apostles after Pentecost... People came to be Christians because the story of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross convinced people that God wasn't looking to destroy them, but God loved them terribly. These people, we must remember, were mostly Jews. They already knew the law. They did not come to Jesus because they suddenly became aware of how badly they were living. No, it was Christ's demonstration of God's love that excited them. That assurance of God's love allowed them to become people who could and would do anything to accomplish God's mission, even going into the den where the lions were waiting for them because they had fallen in love with the God who loved them first. The Apostle Paul supported this idea. He wrote to the Thessalonians, Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. We're told that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so I want you to consider yourself honestly. Are you like a Pharisee, accepting that God made the world But are you also more concerned with the the rules of living as a good Christian than with loving God? Are the Ten Commandments the only real insight you have into the character of God? If so, you haven't really begun to love God. If you aren't yet in love with God, then let me give you an idea. I want you to imagine that you live in a land without knowing about God. The Soviet Union tried to be such a land. They were very good at developing rules for living, and they were very good at enforcing those rules. But you know, they were an awful lot like most countries before Christianity. The rules were the rules. And if you broke the rules, even accidentally, you paid big time. There was no grace at all. Now imagine that Jesus comes along and tells you that he's now in charge of the government. He will hear every court case and he announces that he's willing to forgive every infraction. The rules and the laws haven't changed. The difference is only in who the judge is. Jesus, you see, is the judge who is on our side, loving us, giving us grace. So instead of prison for a littering offense, we get assigned the task of cleaning up a couple miles of roadway. He gives us something to do which will teach us the lesson. Instead of death, for using God's name in vain, we're set free, but told how disappointed our judge is with us. And that changes our entire outlook about the judge. For he could have sentenced us to a horrible death, but instead he just looks at us and says, I'm so disappointed in you. You have such promise. And that breaks our heart, which was his goal because that changes our life you see our hard heart must be broken it must change from being made of stone to being made of something so much more flexible before we can fall in love (laughs) Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was designed to break our hearts you see even if we were the only person who had ever sinned jesus loves us so much that he was willing to take our place on that cross to die where our sentence was death he took our place in fact let's go even further you are brought before Jesus the judge and notice that there's a hangman's gallows in the next room the sign on the wall says the punishment for sin is death and Jesus says to you the punishment for your crimes is death but I want to give you another chance Therefore, I will take your place. And he signs your pardon, and you're told you can go home. And then you see that he walks into the next room, walks up on the gallows, places the noose, the noose that you should be carrying around your neck. He places that noose around his neck and pulls the lever, and the floor drops out from under him instead of you. Ultimately, this is why we should love God and love Jesus. They made a plan and the plan was that Jesus, as the perfect man, would pay the price for all the things that people have done wrong over the centuries. Because he was a man, the sacrifice was real and applied to all humans paying the price. Because he was God walking upon the earth, his sacrifice was valuable enough to pay the entire price. And because he proved he was able to conquer death by coming back to life, the man Jesus defeated death for all of us. And because he was God walking on the earth, we can trust that this defeat of death lasts for all eternity. We don't need to die because he died and came back to life. We will simply notice a short blip like the channel being changed as we pass from mortal life into eternal life. And when we were baptized, we received a part of God in our heart, the Holy Spirit, who guides us with wisdom, when to follow the rules and when to break the rules and how to balance the rules against each other. Our task as Christians is to learn to hear the small, still voice of the Spirit and follow the Spirit's guidance. And this is why and how we should love God God's plan with God's son to sacrifice himself for us and the Holy Spirit to guide us into all knowledge and wisdom was God's solution to our inability to follow the rules. And through that plan, we came back from humanity's broken condition when we were kicked out of the garden for disobedience. And now we can once more be in love with the God who first loved us. And that, my friends, that is the real reason for thanksgiving. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Let us pray. Holy Father, creator of heaven and earth, thank you for your love for us. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org, and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you, and God bless you in your life.